Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. to the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett going live on Revolution.Radio, the finest in free speech listener-sponsored networks. You can be a listener sponsor by going to Revolution.Radio and finding a way to help out. And you can help me out personally. I'm Kevin Barrett at TruthJihad.com. My substack is KevinBarrett.substack.com. And you can go to either of those places and subscribe and get early access to the recorded versions of these shows. So what do we do on these shows? Well, we bring on the best, most interesting or provocative people, for the most part, and then one or two people I disagree with, just for fun, uh, to talk about what's really going on in the world, as opposed to the smokescreen of lies that's being put out pretty much 24-7, 365 by the mainstream. And it so happens that's actually the topic of one of the two fantastic articles that I read this week and was lucky enough to get the authors to come on the show to talk about. And that's the uh, first hour uh, show. But first, I'll tell you about the second hour that's coming up is Max Perry is making his first ever appearance on this show to talk about his article on Alexander Dugan and the origins of the Red-Brown Alliance myth, a, uh, a really, really good piece that we'll talk about one hour from now. But first, let's go to Edward Curtin. He's one of my favorite Internet writers, and it's kind of scandalous that, he, as he confesses in his new article, he's only gotten like $200 in contributions for the writing he's been doing over the years because it is absolutely first-rate. And his new article, Facing Clear Evidence of Peril in a Country of Lies, is uh, is a just a, a brilliant uh, piece in, in many ways, which is par for the course for Edward Curtin. So... Let's get going here, if, if I'm not being drowned out too much by the rain falling on my metal roof. <laughs> so I think I heard Ed on the, the line. So, Ed, are you there? I'm here, Kevin. Can you hear me? I can, but I'm turning up my volume a little bit. As I said, it's it's raining uh, proverbial cats and dogs here in Wisconsin, and my, my roof is turning into a percussion instrument. But anyway, how how are things in your neck of the woods? Good, very good. Um, I love the sound of rain on a roof. Okay, well, love, I'll, I'll unmute I myself then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the sound of rain on the roof is better than the sound of lies, which is what you get when you listen to the mainstream. And uh, I thought your your recent piece was, was great, uh, pointing out that the level of lies is back, you know, sort of like in, during the Cold War, where I first woke up to this stuff in the early 70s when I was in junior high school and then really woke up to it a couple of years later when I was maybe 16 or something when I saw Mark Lane talking about the JFK assassination. And at that time, these lies were threatening to destroy the world by way of the military propaganda about the USSR. And uh, so I did spend one year of my life knocking on doors for the nuclear freeze, responding to that. But I've, I've lived my whole life in the shadow of the insanity of this situation with the lies putting us in danger of extermination 
And it seemed like that danger might have rolled back a little bit post-Cold War, but now it's back with a vengeance. And I think you did a really good job uh, sort of summarizing things in your article. Uh, I mean, where, where do we start with, with Oliver Stone's uh, observation that in his whole life, the chorus of fear-mongering bullshit has never ceased and uh, gets worse and worse? Yeah, well... Uh, that's a, I took that quote from Oliver's uh, really uh, fantastic memoir. Um, what? Oh, my goodness. What's the title of it? Uh, Chasing um, the Light. Yeah, Chasing the Light. Uh, I wrote a review of it uh, a number of years ago when it first came out. And uh, it's, 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 it's a fantastic book. It, it is about uh, filmmaking, of course. Uh, <clears throat> that concept of chasing the light is a is a is a movie or a filmmaker's term, but it has multiple meanings, and uh, it's a profoundly revealing book and very 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 interesting. and And Oliver is Oliver Stone is a wonderful writer. Something that many people probably don't know. They know him for his films. But if they if they pick up that book, they'll find out that, wow, this guy can write and uh, he can also think. Uh, and he's he's taught us uh, a great deal over the years about so many things that people don't want to hear about. So uh, I have great respect for Oliver. And uh, I thought I would begin with that quote because, you know, it, it seems it's it's all it's kind of funny. Uh, how we've been put on all these years uh, by all this propaganda, but it's not really funny. It is and it isn't. So you need to laugh, but you need to cry and you need to resist all at once. That's right. Yeah, it's. It, I remember when I was growing up, I was attracted to the absurdists, uh, you know, sort of the post-existentialist dark comedy or black humorists. Uh, yeah. People like Ionesco and, and Beckett and so on. And at that, you know, their sense was that if it's really serious, it's also funny. You can't you can't be truly serious without being funny and vice versa. And and that that influenced me a lot because I mean, all of this stuff is so bleak that you almost have to be able to laugh at it to, to survive. Oh, you do indeed. You do indeed. Yeah. Ionesco. He had his finger on it, uh, especially with the rhinoceros. Yeah, he wasn't the elephant in the room. It was the rhinoceros in the room for him. He yeah, had the rhinoceros. Right, right. Yeah, the, you know, there's something totally absurd about it. And uh, that's just the way it is. And every day you wake up and you hear something else, you shake your head. You don't know whether to laugh or cry or you do both. Yeah, but you can't roll over and die, so you need to resist. But you you also need to live your life and enjoy existence, and uh, that's what we're here for—to do both. Yeah, and, and striking the balance is so important. I found early on when I started doing nine eleven truth stuff and then related red pill things, pretty much full time, starting back around sort of two thousand six, that. I needed some downtime, and the best downtime for me was stuff that involves being sort of physically engaged with the natural world, like uh, permaculture gardening and uh, swimming 
and yeah. uh, thing, bicycling, things like that. That and then I would ideas would sometimes come to me while I was doing that stuff, and so it kind of worked out because writing is easiest when the idea comes and it sort of naturally unfolds and, and the piece sort of writes itself. And so rather than sitting there in front of the screen your whole life being miserable <laughs> at what's going on in the world and then trying to write about it, it without really you know having that idea, it, I found it was better to kind of limit the time I spent in front of the screen and spend more time doing these other things. And then more often the articles would come to me and sort of write themselves and, and the balance would be struck. And times when I wasn't doing that, it, I, I quickly noticed that I should be. Yes, that's true for me also, Kevin. Um, I think I've written uh, a great deal of my work while I was out walking uh, walking by a lake or in, in the hills, uh, in, in the rain. I love to walk in the rain or in a snowstorm. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, thoughts come to me. It, it, uh, many things come to me and they write themselves. And, and, and also another thing that I've loved to do over the years in which I don't think at all, but, but <clears throat> which is equally important is playing basketball. And when I play basketball, uh, I just play uh, and everything falls uh, aside and I'm just in the moment. And it's a kind of meditation, uh, which is also very important to keep your sanity. Well, it's funny you say that. I, I play basketball regularly, too. Um, how old are you? Uh, I'm 78 now. I was going to say, man, uh, do you play in the over-70 leagues? I'm in good shape, so, uh, and I'm very athletic, and I went to college on a basketball scholarship. I played at the D1 level in uh, college, and basketball's a huge part of my life. I've written about it. Um, uh, it's, uh, It's just a big part of my existence. Wow. Well... You know, I'm not quite as proud of myself then for still being okay at basketball at 64. <laughs> I think you've got You're me just beat. A kid. <laughs> You're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of just barely hanging on, keeping up with my uh, mid 20s son at one on one, and uh, it's, uh, it's. I noticed actually, I'm fasting for Ramadan now, and you would think that that wouldn't be so good for basketball, but. I noticed you kind of get into that flow almost better when you're fasting. You know, Hakeem Olajuwon yeah. used to fast and like that playoffs where he won the NBA title. And yeah. a lot of people thought he shouldn't. But actually, you, what you lose in stamina, I think you gain in sort of focus and concentration. Yeah, and lightness, and lightness. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. true. Wow. So, uh, you know, speaking, get, jumping back to the... Oliver Stone topic. What does he think about 9/11? He said sort of contradictory things about 9/11, and he never really joined his son in uh, Sean Stone in jumping on the 9/11 Truth bandwagon. Even Sean didn't jump on it as much as I did. Of course, probably nobody's jumped on it as much as I did. But but Sean was definitely you know on it, and you know, I was on his show a few times. But Oliver, yeah. it's hard to tell what he thinks about 9/11. He made a he made that World Trade Center movie in which there's a sort of a, a reference to the explosives that brought the buildings down. You, you hear the explosions, 
but that's all. That's the only reference to to the controlled demolition of the Trade Center in that movie. And I've seen interviews and stuff with him in which it, he's sort of said sort of contradictory or vague things. So I, I don't understand whether he ever listened to Sean and figured out 9-11 or not. I don't really know the answer, Kevin. I don't know, and uh, I, I don't presume to know. So it's not in his book. Uh, no, no. His but his book is really not about uh, more contempt. You know, it's not about today really. It's about his uh, when he was in Vietnam and his growing up. It's you know, it's a memoir and how he got into the movies and how it, it stops, I believe, in uh, the, the, the book stops with his making of uh, which which film I'm trying to think which one um, platoon, I, I believe it was. So it, it there, there will be a sequel, I'm sure, because uh, he's such a good writer. And that, that was such a very interesting book. I think he'll he'll pick it up with the sequel and then we'll see uh what he has to say uh if he if he goes from like the late 80s up through the 2000s you know past uh 2001 uh, maybe he'll write about it. Well he he certainly did uh contribute not only to the JFK assassination issue probably as much as anybody has but also to awareness around what's really going on with this Russia-Ukraine war. And he did, of course, produce the Ukraine on Fire, which yep. is the, uh, the film I actually, I had the uh, the filmmaker on uh, talking about that, uh, Igor Lopatnik, uh, a while back. And so he's, he's uh, still out there, you know, at the cutting edge and taking a lot of heat for it. It's kind of proverbial in the mainstream, they, uh, you know, talking about the the naysayers and the so-called conspiracy theorists, meaning that the, the truth speakers that, you know, he's, he's kind of the, the one that they bring up and usually beat up on regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ukraine on fire is, is excellent. When I was teaching and I stopped now, uh, Oh, it's been four years. I used to show it to my students and it was an eye opener for them. Uh, and it's very pertinent to what's going on now. And then his interviews with uh, President Putin of uh, of Russia uh, are really uh, excellent uh, interviews. Uh, most people, you know, have never listened to all of them because they're they're quite long. But I think they are eye opening also, and and shed a lot of light on what's going on now. With this, you know, U.S. Uh, proxy war against Ukraine, I don't know if we can call it a proxy war anymore. It's pretty obvious what it is. Uh, but so, yeah, th those things are really important. Yeah, the interviews with Putin, I, I watched those a while years ago, and I, I kind of hate to admit it because you know people look at my analysis and they say. Oh, you're a Putin apologist. You must love Putin, you know, falling for the usual demonization. And yeah. and the problem is I actually kind of respect Putin. You know, I mean, I'm not normally a big fan of political animals and nationalist leaders and things like that. But Putin just seems like a basically decent and competent 
person doing that job, you know, more so than the vast majority of people who end up doing that job. So in a sense, I actually do have unusual respect for Putin in terms of the political leaders that I know of. And, uh, and part of the reason is watching those interviews. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And uh, uh, Lavrov, uh, the uh, Russian uh, foreign minister, is, is, is a guy, you know, in another class from all these fools that uh, we think of as uh, here, the CIA uh, leader and the Secretary of State and Biden. I mean, Lavrov and, and Putin make these people look like the comical characters they are. Yeah, and I guess their crime is standing up for the best interests of the people of their country. That's the one thing that foreign leaders are really not supposed to do, or the U.S. Empire will come and teach them a lesson. Yeah, it's going to be the opposite, I think. I think it's happening uh, for sure. Um, but, you know, the propagandists, they never give up, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. So you mentioned in your article the issue of funding of alternative media and so on, the role that plays. One, you know, the biggest role it plays, of course, is keeping people in the mainstream because if you want to make a living, it's just much, much easier to do that in the mainstream, you know, whether it's in the academy or the, the media. If you're sort of parroting the narratives that the, uh, the machine is is churning out, you know, and you're singing along with the mighty Wurlitzer, then, you know, there's a place for you there at the table. And in terms of the alternative media, it, there may be some places at the table, but mostly for compromised people. And if you try to just call it the way you see it, which is what I've been doing with my so-called truth jihad since 2006, you know, you kind of have to depend on the kindness of strangers and get used to um, really, you know, figuring out how you could possibly make a living at it. You talked about your history as, you know, you used to publish articles and get paid for them, and then along came the Internet, and suddenly you weren't getting paid anymore. So that's one of the paradoxical effects of the Internet, isn't it, that it both made it possible to find all sorts of dissonant views and increase their proliferation, but it also made it more challenging for people to make a living in, in writing. Yeah, it's it's made it um, almost impossible for someone who um, doesn't have any uh, no-go zones, someone like uh, uh, me or you, who will uh, delve into any issue and will just say what they think and give their analysis. Not that we're always right. We surely aren't. But, uh, you know, just to to, uh, you know, not to hold back. And if you do that, uh, you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be paid for it. I know different websites have asked me, I won't name them uh, uh, over the years to write for them. And, and I'd say, well, do you, do you pay anything, uh, you know, for my work? And they say, no, not right now. But, you know, we're hoping to. Well, they they never did, and uh, <laughs> I never got any any money from them. And many of them, in fact, you know, won't publish my stuff anymore because uh, these are quite prominent uh, websites uh, that won't publish me anymore because of what I say. 
And that's the way it goes. I, you know, I'm at peace with it. Um, it's just that's the price you pay. Yeah, yeah. I, I was making pretty much no money doing this Truth Jihad stuff right up until I went uh, non-commercial. <laughs> I found when I was, when I was on all these commercial networks like you know, Alex Jones's network, GCN, and Republic Broadcasting, and uh, what else? We the People and RBN, uh, or, uh, or no, that was Republic. What was it? Was the other one? The, uh, the uh, We the People turned into Danny Romero's other network, and I'm spacing out on the name. That was on all of these networks, and they all played ads. And so my yeah. show would be interrupted every 15 minutes with somebody hawking, you know, guns and gold and stuff. And I don't think I ever had anybody hawking male enhancement substances like Alex Jones does. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they hawked some some kind of weird supplement type stuff that I wasn't sure was really more than snake oil. And yet, obviously, I can't say that on my show. And so when you get interrupted by somebody who seems to be selling snake oil every 15 minutes, you're trying to have a conversation it, it gets annoying. And so finally I decided to go non-commercial and just put things out without commercials and see if anybody would donate anything. Uh, and since then I've actually been, it, fortunately this happened right when my massively extended unemployment <laughs> finally ran out. <laughs> so by the grace of Allah, I've somehow um, survived as a truth jihadi, but it's kind Good. of a miracle. Good. Miracles happen. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's Although good. I'm, you know, I, I kind of not in really a position to do very well here in the United States. So we're moving to Morocco where the cost of living is lower. And, uh, among, got other good things to do there too. And getting out of the U.S. actually feels good right now. So, but yeah, I could relate to your, you know, your issues with money, uh, cause I'm, I've been facing those too. Yeah. And so who, uh, who are these people who are, you know, really raking it in? And, you, you know, you point out that, right, Alex Jones, that there have been revelations about his net worth. And my goodness, you know, just think of how rich this guy must be when they're suing him for over a trillion dollars. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somehow I think they must be, they must have an exaggerated notion of Alex's wealth. What do you think? Well, they have an, you know, he, I'm sure he's not a trillionaire, but he's, I'm sure he's a very wealthy man. And, um, you know, he's not the only one out there who's uh, raking it in. He's probably the most notorious. I don't know, you know, who they are. Uh, I mentioned it, him in the article because you see all these figures, uh, or I have seen in, in recent months, uh, about his wealth. And I, of course, I don't know exactly, um, how wealthy he is. But whenever I see anyone selling, uh, all kinds of supplements and crap like that, uh, I, I say, get me away from this guy. I want nothing to do with him. Well, you know, I had an idea for selling a, uh, you know, a, a snake oil type health remedy, only it's better than snake oil because what I could sell, and I had this idea early on during COVID when Kat McGuire told me when I, when I got COVID that I should be drinking pine needle tea to treat it. And so I did. And what I discovered was, well, whether or not that was what got me through COVID, pine needle tea is really delicious when you, you, the way you do it is you, you know, you chop up the pine needles and you steep them uh, with ginger and add some lemon okay. and honey. And the combination is fantastic. It's even better than ginger, lemon, and honey 
by itself. And I've got lots of pine trees here. Uh, I guess I won't when I move to Morocco, but I'm still in this pine forest here. And you know, yeah. I thought, you know, if Alex Jones can make that kind of money, you know, selling these <laughs> testosterone supplements, I wonder if I tell everybody that pine needles cure COVID, which of course the FDA might not agree with, and then say, and then say, well, and even if it doesn't, it, it tastes really good. And it is supposed to be good for you. The yogis tell you that it, it extends your life and all this sort of thing. There is this whole uh, folklore around it. And I can yeah. just go, like, be picking pine needles off the branches that fall from the trees all the time in my pine forest. And I could be putting them in envelopes and mailing them out to my listeners. And I could get rich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I said in that article that you're referring to, that recent article, that I think I could maybe uh, uh, sell uh, estrogen and um, uh, uh what is it? What's the yeah, estrogen and testosterone in the same package? And testosterone, you know, so no one would get offended, and uh, <laughs> you know, everyone would be happy, and they'd send me a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, well, the, these days, I guess some weird mixture of estrogen and testosterone is really kind of the, the drug of choice. It's it's like the speed ball, right, where the people would mix uh, like speed or you know coffee with alcohol. And they'd be taking the upper and the downer at the same time, and it would make them completely insane. And it seems like that's kind of what's going on with the gender thing these days. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Like that, that latest, uh, the the trans killer that the media is, uh, the media was like misgendering, and then other people in the media were getting very angry at, at the media people who were misgendering the trans killer uh, thing. Was supposedly I, I saw a piece. I think it was by the uh, notorious Andrew Anglin suggesting that testosterone supplements for women uh, might have actually been involved here because this person was a woman who was taking testosterone and posing as a man. And uh, that's it's probably not a real good idea to hand out testosterone supplements to anybody, um, not even Alex Jones listeners, uh, and certainly not women. <laughs> but, you know, call me old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I'm with you. It's It's yeah. all so weird. It's so weird. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe everybody is always, you know, in the modern world, everybody who has the, you know, the good fortune of living long enough reaches a time when the world seems to have gone completely insane. But frankly, I think the world really has gone insane, and it's not just me. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> oh, I agree totally. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a constant uh, parade of contradictory uh statements, analysis, headlines, stories that contradict each other uh, so that uh, any, you know, just reasonable person hearing it all doesn't know what to think at all. They're totally confused. And uh, from day to day, if you look at The New York Times or CNN or these mainstream sources, every day you'll see, and I've been noticing and I laugh, but it's sick. But I, I laugh. One day it's uh, the, the Russians are getting uh, destroyed at, in the battle for Bakhmut in, in, in Ukraine. And the next day it's the Ukrainians are getting slaughtered. And it's the same. Uh, it's CNN or the New York Times. And you, you shake your head and you say, wait, wait, they said the opposite yesterday. Now they're saying this. And what will they say tomorrow? And it's the same on almost every issue. And they, they just sow confusion. 
and contradictory stories. And uh, that's the name of the game. Keep people messed up mentally. Well, I think there is a certain kind of consistency in the thematics of the Ukraine coverage, because when they say the Ukrainians are in serious disarray in Bakhmut, what they really mean is they need our money. You know, we need to give them more money. And then when yeah. they, they say yeah. the, the Ukrainians are winning, they're they're kicking the Russians behind. What that really means is, hey, uh, good for this war effort. Wow, keep supporting the war effort because it's successful. So there's always a subtext, which is to keep shoveling billions and billions of dollars over towards Zelensky. Yeah, for sure. So right. at least there's some consistency there. But you're, you're right. A lot of it is just bizarre, uh, often contradictory, you know, one darn thing after another. Uh, and uh, the mainstream, it used to seem a lot more sort of sedate and a little more factual and, and genuinely balanced and stuff, sort of more just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach. I remember the New York Times back in the day was mostly more like that. It was still propaganda. It was still yeah, hiding yeah. the big things. But, but now... It's kind of, it seems kind of unhinged, like, like the writers get, you know, they're, they're out of control emotionally and they can't resist like really, you know, hammering on, you know, this or that. Like the difference between the op-eds and the straight news has almost completely disappeared, it seems. Yes, yes, it has. And those boundaries between, uh, uh, uh news reporting and commentary have broken down. And I, I used to think that would be okay. Like I, when I went to journalism school in the 19, what was that, mid 70s or kind of mid to late 70s, early 80s, at that time, I was, you know, young and stupid and impatient with traditional journalism. And my heroes were people like, you know, Hunter Thompson and, and, uh, Tom Wolfe and the, the whole new journalism where you, you know, do something really interesting from a literary standpoint in journalism. Yeah. And, so I, I was really impatient with the whole, you know, stick to the facts mode. And I liked the idea of being able to inject opinion and subjectivity and literary value into your journalistic pieces. And now, you know, it's like, uh, be careful what you wish for <laughs> because the mainstream has abandoned its, uh, all that stuff that I didn't like when I was in journalism school and it just made it worse. It's quite ironic. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's another thing. If you live long enough, you learn that, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it uh, it always happens, and it didn't turn out the way you thought. But, yeah, the uh, so so the, the back to the, the, the money issue, the alternative media, you mentioned that there are these alternative media sources that seem to be making money, and they beg for money, and they say they're going out of business if you don't give them money, and that seems to work because they keep doing it. Uh I, I kind of have a sense of, of who that would be. I mean, in a sense, we're all doing that, or at least all of us were getting any money from it. But it seems like there are some that are much more opaque than others. Like those of us who are on Substack are, I think, I think Substack actually can tell you sort of roughly how many subscribers you have and who, you know how much money the writer is getting. Yeah, they do. Yeah. But but some of these other sites, you don't even really know who they are. They don't have an actual name associated with them. And and often the, the, the ones I don't like so much are the ones that have a lot of ads that you never know who they are. They don't tell you their name. And they're not real clear about their funding. 
And there, there are a lot of sites like that, and they seem to be actually more popular. I, I don't want to mention their names because, I, I mean, I, I get useful information from some of these sites, and we use their stories at False Flag Weekly News and stuff. But, yeah. But, yeah, it seems like there could be a lot more transparency, or maybe the audiences should just be more discerning and be, pay more attention to the people and sites that are more transparent and less attention to the ones that aren't. Yeah, and there are individual writers also who say, you know, I can't keep this up unless you support me. Uh, it's not just sites, uh, but they seem to, you know, keep it up. I, 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 now, maybe that's just because they, they get good support from their their readers uh, or and listeners. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't I don't know much about it. Um except that, you know, I, I have these questions and I know that something changed dramatically with the Internet. I mean, it it is true where wherever you published in the past before the Internet became the source for for writing of all sorts, if you published in a newspaper or in a magazine, you were paid. It doesn't mean you were paid a lot. But you were paid because you were a writer. And, you know, people, uh, <clears throat> writers deserve to be paid. I'm not saying everyone deserves to be paid because some people write garbage. But if someone writes decent stuff uh, and they're they're good at it, uh, they deserve to be paid something. I'm not saying they you need to get rich. Um, that's not the point. Uh, but it, when the Internet came in, uh, many, many, many good writers were, you know, just gave their stuff away. And I, I know I did. And uh, I, I, I wasn't complaining. I, I wasn't complaining about it. I did it freely. No one twisted my arm. And I accepted it. And, you know, I have a little small voice and a little small website. And, uh, you know, so I just put my stuff out and then other places picked it up and they didn't pay me. And I, I was I was fine with it. But I finally realized that it's kind of one of these uh, uh, dirty secrets that someone needs to talk about a little bit. And that's what elicited um, this recent article from me. Among other things, that's just one part of it, of course, as you know. But I think the subject needs to be broached and discussed. Yeah, I think it is more important than most people realize. I remember hearing about this a lot from Gordon Duff, the former senior editor of Veterans Today, who's now putting out the Intel drop. And he comes out of the intelligence community, right? He's one of these people you, you mentioned in the article, the former former this and retired that, right? Well, he's a he's a former spook and a, and a, a marine, and he as uh, you know from from the spook's perspective, he always just immediately the first thing he looks at when he sort of profiles somebody to figure out where they're coming from and how to evaluate their information is how are they making a living and. So he does that with pretty much everybody on the Internet. And he had a very jaundiced view, I think an overly pessimistic view, maybe still does, of the alternative media. 
in which you know he kind of thought that it was you know a lot of these people many many of whom I liked he saw as kind of shysters or in some cases he had these theories that struck me as bizarre about people being paid uh, by you know nebulous forces to put out this or put out that and, you know that comes from a spooks a professional paranoia but the larger uh, issue uh, was uh, that he was raising was absolutely valid which is that if you want to sort of really uh, get a sense of who to be paying attention to, how to evaluate what people, what information people are putting out, having a sense of how they're making a living is really helpful. Well, it's necessary, I think. Uh, I'd, I'd say, how does uh, Gordon Duff make a living? Um, uh, you know, he'd be a person that I'd ask the same question to. Uh, I, it's not asking, you know, what's your income and that kind of thing. That's, you know, specifically, that's not, not my business. Um, and, and, you know, these people are not going to say it anyway. Um, it, it, but it's, you know, it, one of the things, there's so many former intelligence agents who are out there now across the Internet, alternative media, obviously on the mainstream media, former generals, former CIA agents, all these people. And on the mainstream media, it's easy to say, oh, look at these people. It's easy for people like you and I or people from the alternative world to say to criticize them. But what about the alternative media? There are so many of these former, uh, you know, intelligence agents who are out there. And, you know, maybe they've changed. I don't know. Um, but I think it's worth asking a question about it. I, I put into that article when I was young and I was a teacher in my 20s. Uh, I, I was a guy tried to recruit me into Army intelligence because, as I said in the article, he said, you'd be great because you're an anti-war activist and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you, you'd be able to do all this work for us and, and no one would ever think you were doing it. Uh, and that opened my eyes at an early age. And uh, my eyes are wide open now. Yeah. Well, I, I was never uh, recruited or attempted recruited by any in- intelligence agencies. But I was sort of attempted recruited by Satanists on two occasions. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I guess I'm, you know, I, I, I can, you know, I have my own stories there, which I think I might yeah. have told on the air once or twice. Yeah. Oh, that's some. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, you know, getting back to these retired people, you know, come out of these power positions and then become alternative voices. There are different ways of looking at that. I, I know Ron Unz has talked about uh, people like, or Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor and Scott Ritter, uh, among others, as uh, people that he tends to trust. And he assumes that they're basically just fed up with the BS and felt like, you know, they've got their pension. Well, I guess in Scott Ritter's case, he went through a whole uh, kind of (laughs) a whole whole process, I guess, in getting divorced from the mainstream. But, in any case, Ron Unstake's kind of a positive view of these guys and sees them as people who had 
respectable careers on the inside. And he also has you know, a number of other people that he sees that way as well um, and sees that as, as a plus. But you're saying that, are you talking about uh, any specific people that you have doubts about um, who purport to be ex-insiders? Or do you, do you see that it's, does that kind of doubt apply universally or a lot more to some than to others? Well, I wouldn't I, I, I wouldn't want to say specifically anyone. It's just a general feeling that I have um, not not I, you know, not about this one or that one. Uh, in, in fact, if you go back to 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 Scott Ritter, Scott, uh, I was listening to him uh, give a, a talk and it was a very good talk about um, Ukraine. And in it, he said. Uh, someone asked him, I, I think he was asked this in an interview, maybe it was an interview, and he said, um, well, I, I get paid for every article I write. And I thought, well, really, that's interesting, um, because, you know, uh, some of the places that you've written things, Scott, I've written for too, and I haven't gotten a penny. I wonder how that works. Um how did you get paid and why did you get paid unless he was just, you know, saying it and, you know, he wasn't thinking clearly. I don't know. You know, sometimes you say stuff and uh, but but he did say it and that struck me. And I thought, hmm, that's very interesting. Uh, but I, I, there are obviously people who work for intelligence agencies across the internet who are being paid by the intelligence agencies. That, that I think you'd have to be a fool not to know that. Who they are, I don't know. Mm. But I think, I think it's just a given. Uh, things haven't changed down through the, the decades. Uh, there are plants all over the place and people who are doing the work of uh, intelligence agencies, whether whether it's U.S. or British or whatever. Uh, but I don't I don't know who they are. It's just a guessing game. Yeah. Well, with Scott Ritter, it's always possible that because he's a big name that an outlet might pay him, whereas they wouldn't pay you or me. That's one possibility anyway. Sure. Sure. But yeah. All, but yeah, you're you're right that there are, are undoubtedly these kind of spooky writers out there. When I try to figure out who they are, you know, I I try to, and this, I've argued this with Gordon Duff many times, you know, he, he his analysis often, you know, leaves me completely baffled. I don't understand uh, <laughs> how he uh, is, has come to believe that so many of these people are, are spooks. But uh, the way I would look at it is just a kind of a who benefits thing. And if I can sort of understand how it might be useful for certain vested interests to have somebody saying this or that thing, then I can kind of, you know, see how that, that person or, you know, those outlets, the people putting out this discourse that could conceivably be, be useful to the powers that be, you know, might be getting paid for it. And then the other issue is, is are they kind of goofy and unstable? Because I noticed, I read about uh, the 60s 
and the uh, COINTELPRO type deals, it's what I was really struck by, and I think other people have been too, is how the the people that they use to infiltrate are far from sort of the you know G-man type, and you can tell who they are because they have the shiny black shoes, like in Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. On the contrary, they're like really, you know, freaks and out there and goofy and, you know, often you know, taking a lot of drugs. And the IRA, for example, was infiltrated by British intelligence, and the worst of the killings were done by the British intel infiltrators precisely to establish their bona fides because the real IRA people kind of assumed that the any infiltrators wouldn't be out there like you know killing people and stuff and so, so it, as it turned out though that the the British found that it was useful to uh, extend the violence to do have more violence and so they would have their infiltrators you know not only go and, and do you know whack somebody do a hit for the IRA then they would go on and argue for the most violent possible tactics and so the probably the vast majority of IRA violence was actually perpetrated by the British. They were responsible for it. They created it through their infiltration. There was an article on this in Harper's Magazine. It actually made the, that much of the mainstream that uh, really blew my mind uh, maybe 10 years ago. So, and that's just one example of how infiltrators are often wild and crazy. Like there's another guy who, in uh, what's his name, Butch somebody or other, I'm he was on the show, I believe, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, who infiltrated the anti-war movement and he was also active during Watergate and played a role in the Watergate coup d'etat and so this guy was a kind of bisexual mostly gay massively you know drug using totally unstable nut job and yet he was one of the most important uh, I think naval intelligence uh, infiltrators of the anti-war movement in the counterculture and, and so when I look at the alternative media now, a lot of the stuff that's really not helpful to our cause is also, you know, kind of a, a bit on the wild and, and unstable side, you know, whether it's flat earth or, you know, viruses don't exist or what have you. And and so those those are really the two things I, I look at is, is who benefits. And then I have this sort of uh, antenna for a certain kind of instability or weirdness that I would associate with an infiltrator. Yeah. Well, I think about it too. I just don't, you know, have, have all the answers. Obviously no one does. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious and cautious and, and skeptical. Uh, I guess you could take it too far at the same time. Uh, you could say, for example, and I'm not stating this as a fact, I'm using it just hypothetically. You mentioned uh, Gordon Duff, and I, I don't know much about him. Uh, you know about him. I, I know who he is um, uh, vaguely. Um, I know some things about him. Uh, but if he was an ex-Intel uh, in, guy, and then he's pointing out all the Intel people across the internet, theoretically, hypothetically, that could be a tactic of, of continuous, continual, uh, Intel, uh, uh, mind control, because then people became so suspicious of everyone, uh, they don't believe anything. 
because if you get what I'm saying, I'm not saying that's true, true in his case, because I, I have no way of knowing. I, I, you know, I'm just I'm just using it as an example. So it's it's very hard for the average person to figure out, you know, who's who's telling the truth and who has no axe to grind and who isn't profiting from this. And I, I feel like in a way not making any money from what you have to say is 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 a way of doing that. Um, not that it, you know, helps you in life. But, you know, I was never after a lot of money. That's been the story of my life. Uh, um, but at, at least if you don't get paid, uh, you know, you're not you're not gaining anything from it. You're just trying to see the truth as best you can and, and express it and share it with other people. Yeah, well, I, I do appreciate the crowdfunding uh, because I can just tell people, you know, look, if you like what I do overall, and I'm sure you disagree with some of the stuff I do and some of my views, I certainly don't expect everybody in the world to have my precise array of views, you know, worldviews and so on. I mean, sure. come on. <laughs> yeah. but, but if you just sort of appreciate the overall package, you appreciate that somebody is doing this, then, you know, just putting out a, a little bit of money so I can do it means that I can continue to be totally honest. Whereas if right. I were trying to spend this much time writing and broadcasting and what, what are the other alternatives? You know, some people, they get foundation funding and that totally, you know, ropes them into the mainstream or they work at a, a, a kind of a straight uh, mainstream job or what have you, or maybe in, in the case of Alex Jones or something, they, they sell the male enhancement products uh, which I suppose, <laughs> I, I don't know how much that warps what Alex does in terms of his <laughs> reporting. <laughs> I hope not too much. I, mean, I hope he's not, you know, high on his own supply <laughs> too much. He sometimes looks like he is. But... <laughs> well, he, <laughs> yeah, the way he talks, he's, he seems to be hepped up on something. I don't know. You know, what, one, one of the guys who, who, who I like just because he's so, I don't always agree with what he, he says and he doesn't always agree with me, but I have great respect for him. Uh, and, and I, many of the things he posts on his website, I disagree with also. And that's Ron Unz. Ron publishes, uh, different people's opinions. He, he, he allows, uh, uh, a mix, uh, to, to go on his website. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a rare, rare quality, really. It's, it's very rare. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. People in the past, you know, some people who don't like Gordon Duff, quite a lot of people actually have said, what are you doing? You know, hanging around that guy on the internet. And my answer was always, I can say whatever I want at Veterans Today. Which of course is now just changed to vtforeignpolicy.com and Gordon is no longer affiliated with the site, but it's still the same total free speech outlet. And I appreciate that. So that's why I've always been there. And likewise with, uh, with Ron Unz. And he's also been, you know, totally wide open to free speech, even when he disagrees with it. But I find he's, most of his views I find pretty well supported. You know, even the ones I disagree with, I have to admit he's making a good argument for them. 
Oh, he makes good arguments. I I agree. Uh, he he himself. I'm not talking so much about his arguments as some other people on there. Um, I I you know, but again, you, you can't agree with everyone, and uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff I disagree with uh, in many places, and people disagree with me. That's just the way it goes, but. I think it's very important that there there be different voices out there. And uh, this is the problem that we're faced with now. Uh, the censorship issue is huge. And, uh, you know, who's censoring whom and what? And it's it, it's a crazy situation. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Yeah. Well, it seems like the intolerance for certain kinds of views has really gotten extreme, you know, and it's funny yeah. because that's all, it's all coming from the side that wants its to, its tolerance, right? Like, I think as I think it's in the Max Perry article I'm going to talk about with Max in the second hour of the show, where he, he mentions there are these people like high ranking, you know, political people in the mainstream world who are tweeting out basically death threats to uh, transphobes. <laughs> <laughs> now that's one way to demonstrate your tolerance is to you know to Death kill people who disagree with you about that. Oh my god, <laughs> oh, that, that's horrendous. By the way, uh, I, I think Max does great work, so I'm glad he's coming on after me. Yeah, me too. I thought you two were a really good lineup, especially because you both put out really good articles this week. In fact, towards the end of this week, like I'm really lucky we get to talk about these really fresh new articles. Um, and yeah, yours. Uh, was again first rate. The facing clear evidence of peril in a country of lies, and then you know leads up to the observation that you know when it was lies about weapons of mass destruction with Bush's with Bush's twitchy eyes, totally giving away that he knows he's lying. Uh, that was pretty bad for Iraq. In fact, it was horrific for Iraq, and in the long term, it was pretty bad for the United States as well. But these lies about Russia and Ukraine now are in a whole new category of uh, danger, aren't they? Oh yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, you know we're we're in very dangerous territory. Uh, I don't know where it's it's going to uh, end. The United States has has uh, backed itself into a corner uh, because the, the Ukrainian. Uh, military is not going to defeat the Russians. And uh, so where does that leave the United States, who continues to support this, uh, uh, you know, a neo-fascist government and Zelensky? Uh, you know, wh where do they go from here? Uh, I know you know, uh, I'm sure, and your listeners probably know, that recently it was announced, I believe first by the British, that they're sending uh, uh, depleted uranium uh, weapons to to Iraq, to Ukraine, excuse me. Um, uh, and then uh, the Russians said, well, we're sending uh, tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus uh, in in response. And, and every day, I mean, the average person doesn't know this, but every day the Israelis are bombing Damascus. The United States uh, military is occupying Syria. Uh, you, you can't make this stuff up. The hypocrisy is so beyond 
belief. And, it is, and many, you know, many people don't even know it's happening. Yeah, they don't. It's, it's they don't want to know. Yeah, and and maybe I'm crazy, but it's, this is one of the reasons I'm moving to Morocco and getting out of the United States. Now, whether it's actually any better anywhere else on this planet, I don't know. But yeah. it can't be that much worse. Well, thank you so much, Edward Curtin. It's wonderful talking with you and reading your incredible stuff. And you really deserve to have many zeros tacked on to that measly sum that you've made on your writing. So keep up the good work, and God bless. It's Kevin Barrett back in the next hour for a conversation with Max Perry, his first time ever on this show. Stick around for that.